Bibles, let's go ahead and go to Romans chapter 8, and we will look here, we, we, we looked last Wednesday at the short number of 11 verses, but we, 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 did, uh, we did get through, uh, or did, did we get through those 11 verses? We did not get through, okay, oh no, very good, I'm glad somebody's paying attention. Um, we got through eight, right? We didn't do confidence. We didn't do the last little bit, did we? We got through verse number eight. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to pick up at verse number nine and, and go down through, uh, Lord willing, verse number 17. Okay? So nine, nine to 17. Let's see, if, let's see if we can get through these verses. So here in Romans 8, we, um, uh, we, we said that uh, as a whole, uh, it, again, in, in my study and looking at it, I, I try not to just cookie cut uh, a whole bunch of stuff. There's been a lot of a, a lot of uh, preaching uh, going through the book of Romans. There's um, multiple different uh, commentaries you can read on it, and, and so there's a lot of a lot of guidance into things. But uh, it's important that we not just take what men have said about it face value, but read it, study it. Uh, use other input as guidelines of understanding, but um, in, in that, I, I do try to look and read and ask the Lord, Lord, what, what would be, if, if you were to give me specifically uh, a theme for the chapter, what would that theme be in, in me reading it? What stands out as a central theme of each chapter in Romans? And for Romans chapter 8, for, for me, the central theme uh, as a whole, would be the security of Christ in us through the Spirit, all right, through the Spirit of God, the security of Christ in us through the Spirit. And, and, and the two key verses that I would focus on out of all of the verses in chapter 8, the two key verses that I would say kind of hone in that theme the best together would be fifteen, verse number 15 and 16, which we should get to tonight, uh, but it says, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, and then verse number 16 says, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There, there is assurance in salvation by the spirit bearing witness within us. And, uh, and so we're, we'll get to that here in just a moment, but, but again, that brings about the understanding, the security uh, of Christ in us through the Spirit, or the Spirit of God. And, uh, and so we, we went through one through uh, verse, verse one through verse number eight, uh, which is the, the first main verses there dealing with the life in the Spirit, if you wanted to give it a category, life in the Spirit, um, and of course, the fact that the, the, the truth of no condemnation and what that means is verse one through four. And then we dealt with a carnally minded or spiritually minded basis of uh, verse number five to verse number eight. And to end off that first um, division of verses uh, in, in dealing with the life in the spirit, uh, verse number nine through verse number 11 deals with the confidence in Christ. And um, let me just read the verse. It says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Uh, and, and may I say what he's dealing with there is, because we'll see it again in a minute, and it could become very confusing. You could actually, 
you could actually say, well, Paul's teaching works, salvation. He's showing, and if you're not careful, if you don't understand where Paul already, st- he made very clear where he stands on works versus grace of God. Where it's not, a, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Paul has made very clear that he does not believe that you work your way to forgiveness, but that you place yourself at the mercy and grace of God, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that you are saved by God's grace. And, um, and so Paul's stand on works is already clear. It is not by works. It is only by grace. So he is not confusing the matter by being a flip-flop kind of teacher, he's still firm on grace through the blood of Jesus Christ and that alone for salvation, not of works. So why does it sound like sometimes he flip-flops back and forth? Well, he's not flip-flopping, though he is directing his his letter to the brethren. You'll see that many times, brethren. You'll see it in just a few verses here. Uh, we'll find where he's speaking very specifically to those who claim to be saved. But when he's talking about in the flesh or in the spirit, sometimes it looks like he's talking to those that are saved, saying that you live in the flesh or you live in the spirit, and so therefore you either uh, are saved or you lost your salvation. You are saved or you lost your salvation. Or, or you didn't have salvation, you tried to gain salvation. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's always a division of two options. Every human being has the, the ability to choose two op- one of two options for their life, and that is the choice to live according to the flesh or to live according to the Spirit, which means are you a child of God or are you not a child of God? Now, he's clearly defining saved versus unsaved, but he also gives the understanding that even as a saved person, we can fall prey to the power of the flesh and sin. Even as a child of God, we can deal and struggle with sin and we can give in to the flesh. But when he's talking about you live by the flesh or you live by the spirit, he's talking about a dividing of choice that a person has made. Do you choose to live apart from Christ or do you choose to live in Christ? And, and that is a, a salvation moment decision. And so as, as we look at here, he says he's, he's reassuring some of them and letting them know that when he's talking to them about living or being in the flesh or giving into the flesh, being carnally minded, he's not saying that you thought you were saved but you lost it. So he's not trying to cause confusion. That's why in verse number 9 he says, but ye are not in the flesh. He's trying to let them know, I I know you're saying you have received Christ. And if you've received Christ, I'm not talking about you living according to the flesh. Now you might give into it every now and then, but you are not living as a lost fleshly person sold out to sin in the flesh, we, we know that you are in Christ. But he goes on here, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. All right, so he's clarifying that there is a divisional separation between those that are the child of God and those that are not. Now he says, now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There is the deciding factor of salvation. All right, do you have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God dwelling and living within you? 
Verse number 10 says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead uh, because of sin, but the spirit is, uh, spirit is life because of righteousness. What he's saying is, if Christ is in you, you still have two things working in you. You still live within a body that will die. Your body, even as a saved individual, the sin has been condemned in the flesh. And that flesh is going to die. But inside of you has now been, there has been a reviving of something that once was just as dead and doomed as that fleshly body that sin, sin is condemned in. And that was the soul, the spirit of a man. And, and, and that spirit was dead and it was dormant. It was, it was gone. It was condemned until, of course, something happened. And it was revived with that which the, the only thing which could revive the right righteousness within you, you might, you might say. He's saying the only thing that could revive within you that which is dead and make a new man on the inside, though still robed in this flesh, the only thing that could revive Within you, that which is dead would have to be the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the flesh is always there. The condemnation of the flesh is always there. And now that you are alive, in, in, in verse number, number 10, and if Christ be in you, okay, so saved, you're saved, it's settled, it's done, you're, gonna, you're on your way to heaven. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Christ is in you, but your body is doomed. It's, he it's headed for the grave. It's headed for death. It's condemned because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. That which has been revived now has an eternal destination to be with God and not separated from God. So though we live in this mortal, fleshly, condemned body, there is within us something that has been revived and not by our own doings, but only by a holy God and a righteous God can that which was dead and empty be revived to a point where now holy God can dwell within me. And so he's clarifying here that there is lost and there is the saved, but there's also the saved needing to know that you're still robed in a condemned body because of sin. All right, so verse number 11 says, and, uh, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. What does that mean? It simply means, oh, I'll give you two things in a sense. Quicken your mortal bodies. In this life, God, that which dwells in you, can give you the strength to overpower that which dwells on you. <laughs> and so, therefore, the working of Christ in you can, can strengthen you within this mortal body to do that which this sinful body has no power to do of itself. Please God. Follow God. But at the same time, he that raised up Christ has the ability and will one day also, even though this fleshly mortal body must die, he has, however he's going to do it, already a plan that he is going to raise up those that are in Christ and that mortal shall put on immortality. 
and he will put together a body that is not condemned in sin, but it is a new body, and it is, it, it is a, you might say, a new shell that has been revived, cleaned up, and, and, and made glorified, which we'll see in a minute, glorified, that, that can stand in his presence. And if he did it, if that was provided for Christ, which is the first fruits of the resurrection, you better believe that he's going to do it also for all those that are in Christ. And so as a whole, that now I didn't even give you my, my notes. The confidence in Christ that we have, verse 9 through 11, is that Christ is the key to having the spirit within, not works. I did mention that. And then number two to that would be the ability to, you know, to be spiritually minded is not within ourselves. Something must be revived within us that gives us the ability to be spiritually minded when this flesh has no power to do it. Therefore, uh, I can be, as, as um, uh, verse, uh, verse number 11, I believe, talked about, that, that he shall quicken your mortal bodies. We, he has the ability to, to revive and do within us what we could not do of ourselves. So therefore, it is about Christ, and my confidence is in Christ and being in him and he, him and me. Now, moving on to the next area there, verse 12 through verse 17, um, it deals with, uh, if you want to give it a heading, so we, we had the heading of verse 1 through 11 is life in the spirit, but then... Uh, the, the verse 12 through 17 would be, in my opinion, the best way to put it, debtors made heirs, okay? Debtors made heirs. And um, in verse number 12 through verse number 17, well, I should say 12 and 13. 12 and 13 lay out, uh, there, there's a, uh, if you're doing a, a, an outline, this would be an A, a B, and a C on this, and they have some subpoints too. Uh, so it's points, points, and subpoints. But um, verse number 12 and 13 would be living the life of a debtor, okay? So it points out the life of a debtor, but debtor to what? It asks three questions. Uh, to whom is he speaking? To whom or what are we indebted? And what decided the outcome of our indebtedness? Now, let me show you. Verse number 12, verse number 13 says, Therefore, brethren. So to whom is he speaking? The brethren. Saved. Okay, so he is, uh, he, he is uh, in his own mind, um, uh, appealing to those that claim to be a child of God. So therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. So the second question is, to whom or what are we indebted? Well, he, he um, says what we're not indebted to. So we're not to be, if you're saved, you're not indebted or you owe nothing to this flesh. Well, I, I got to make sure that, that I, I'm giving us everything we're supposed to have in life. No, I owe nothing to this flesh. I, I, don't, I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to um, give myself anything. I don't have to pamper myself with anything. It, well, well, you know, uh, we, it's just the way us human beings are. Listen, just the way us human beings are according to sin is not how I should live. I, I owe nothing to this sinful flesh. And so therefore, I'm not indebted to this flesh. Matter of fact, matter of fact if you want to get right down to it, when you, when you feel indebted to somebody, it's because of something they have done for you. Tell me the last thing that your flesh did anything for you. 
other than cause you pain and heartache. And uh, if you wake up in the morning grunting and groaning, all right? Tell me anything that this flesh, tell me anything that the fleshly desires actually did for us, then give us, except for give us desires to want to consume upon our own lust, that if we actually went after those things that this flesh wanted and we gave this flesh what it wanted, it actually buries us in problems. I owe nothing to this flesh. I am not indebted to sinful flesh. Now, as a lost person, according to what Paul has already taught, as a lost person, I am bound and I am chained and I am indebted to sin. It is my master. But when Christ comes in, he sets me free from that taskmaster. He sets me free from, from that bondage. And I, I don't owe anything to that sinful life and that sinful pleasure. I owe nothing to that. I've been freed from it so that I can serve him and I can love him and I can thank him for what he has done. I can give him my all because I owe nothing back here. I don't have to go back and say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I, I, still need, I need to make sure that I still give a little bit to my old life. I owe nothing to my old life. My life without Christ has no bearing on my new life with Christ. It now is the past. It is now behind me, and I now look forward because I am not indebted to that. Now, he doesn't say specifically where the indebtedness is, but it is alluded to. If I'm not indebted to this old life, and I'm, I'm not indebted to my old flesh, then there's only one other direction I'm indebted to. Means that I must be and I must see that I am. My indebtedness is to the one who paid the price for me. I am bought with a price. I am not my own. Therefore, if I'm to feel a debt, it's to the one who showed me grace. It's to the one who forgave me what I was unworthy of being forgiven of. It's the one that gave me more than I could ever ask for and promises me more ahead of me than I could ever possibly dream. My indebtedness is not to consider my past life and all those things. My indebtedness is to only look forward and say I must serve him because I love him. So we are not, we are, we, are, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Verse number 13 says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, that verse right there, verse number 13, is where somebody can say, Oh, oh, you see, you see, it's works. No, he's just again describing that dividing line. I am not attached to the flesh. Why? Because as a lost person, that was my attachment. That was my bondage. And if I live after the flesh, I'm going to face the same condemnation of that flesh, which is death, dealing with the second death. It's talking about, it's talking about an eternal death and separation because of the condemnation of sin. But he already said, I, we're, we're not part of that anymore. 
So therefore, I have the Spirit of God within me, and I now have the living through the Spirit, which is an, a daily act of mortifying the deeds of this body. In other words, bringing unto submission every aspect of this flesh that I have to be shelled into. And so therefore, according to God's power working in me through the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ, I have the ability to daily bring on into subjection this flesh and mortify this flesh and remind myself that flesh is dead to me. I no longer live according to it. I live according to the Spirit of God that dwells within me. And so it is the living the life of a debtor. My debt no longer is to be paid towards the flesh. I am fully in debt to the one who freed me from it. But it's a willing debt to pay. Because the debt I pay is nothing compared to the debt he paid that I could not pay on my own. Well, then very quickly, 14 through 16 gives us the proof of family status. I like this part, all right? Proof of family status. Verse number 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So what are some of the evidences and proofs uh, that, that I am part of the family of God? Well, if I was doing an investigation, I was to inspect some things. Uh, number one, I would find, according to Paul laying out here in teaching, I would find that, it, that uh, those be, that are capable of being led by the Spirit of God. Again, not claiming, may I say and remind us that it's one thing to claim, well, well the Lord has, has given me peace about this. May I say, everything I do that I, I put on God's shoulders as, well, he was the one that directed me, the evidence will show with time. Those things in which the Lord directs will not lead me further away from him. And those things in which the Lord directs will not directly contradict known and clear truth from the word of God those things in which the Lord directs, he is able then to place his blessing upon. And so if somebody steps out and says, well, God gave me peace and God directed, the Spirit of God directed me to do this or do that. And then they do this and they do that. And then they have to work hard, hard, hard to make it still work. Well, they, they got to make this work. Boy, I tell you what, this is, this is just, oh, man, alive. I, I, I don't know why God's not, don't get me, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I, sometimes God takes us through some very difficult things. Sometimes he, he brings us through some valley times and it's not easy and it, it's, it, it is very hard and it, it seems like uh, it, we're, we're not going to make it through this point to the next area of being able to get up the mountain. But we're not talking about God bringing us through tough times we're talking about saying that, well, God led me this direction, and then once I get there, everything falls apart, and I can't seem to keep it together, and I'm grabbing at straws trying to make it work. May I say, even when God brings me through hard times, it still comes with peace. And even when God brings me through difficult scenarios, it still comes with peace. 
some, though, though sorrow and some difficulty, it still comes with peace and direction that I am in the center of God's will. This doesn't feel good. I don't know why he's doing this. I'm in a very uncomfortable situation. But this one's on him because I'm just following him. Kind of like um, there, there have been a couple of times where um, buying a vehicle. We, we have gone, we've prayed about it, we've looked at it. Most unnerving thing is buying a new-to-you a, a new vehicle. Praying and hoping the person you're working with isn't a liar. Praying and hoping that even if they're not a liar, that you don't get the vehicle and nobody knows anything, but two days later it breaks down on you and the transmission falls out. You know, sometimes that stuff can happen and nobody, nobody was the wiser. Nobody really knew. It's just one of those things that happens. God let it happen. And so you're buying this vehicle. Please, Lord, let it just work. May I say, I have had the ability to have the experience, and I can speak from experience on this one. I do know what it's like. I know what it's like to buy a vehicle and then hope and pray and do everything I can to keep it running because afterwards I, I, I knew I kind of pushed my way into it and God didn't actually give me peace. I did that as a young man. And instead of waiting, I was impatient and I wanted, I wanted one now, one of my vehicle. There probably was a better one later on that God really had for me, but I pushed it through and I got the one that I saw right in front of me because it was right there and I wanted to drive my own vehicle right now. But I also know what it's like to walk in, look, view over that vehicle, try to talk myself out of it 20 different times, and God keeps saying, come back to here, come back to here, come back to here. And we have bought a vehicle, the very first, matter of fact, that little that, that Nissan that no longer exists. Um, that little Nissan we came here in. Victoria drove it forever. Matter of fact, several people here have driven that Nissan at different times because of vehicle problems. It became like the, the, the church donor. Uh, we just loaned it out constantly. But um, that little Nissan vehicle, when we bought it, it had 7,000 miles on it. It had gotten into a, somebody had bought it brand new and brought it down to New Orleans for their first trip. That was their first mistake. But somehow from up north, they drove it down, got into a wreck, and I even looked at the paperwork. They totaled the car, but I looked, there was no major body damage whatsoever. I don't know how in the world they totaled the car. Somebody had connections. And they, they fixed a few little front, end, the, the, the front bumper and stuff like that, but it, it was just cosmetic stuff and then repainted everything and it, it looked good, no bent frames, no issues. And then here's the thing, even after we bought it, we found out it had some recalls. We took it in the Nissan dealership. One of the recalls was on the speedometer and all. And so when they, when they actually did that back, it, it went back a thousand miles. It had been over-calculating. So we bought it at, at 7,000 miles, and by the time we got done with that, it had 6,000 miles. First time a car went backwards while owning it. <laughs> but, uh, but we bought that car, and it was the first time we had never, ever before taken a loan to get a car. We had never before bought a car that didn't have at least 100,000 miles on it when we got it. I don't really know what it's like to have a whole bunch of vehicles under 100,000 miles. It's 100,000 plus, and matter of fact, the last Jeep that we owned 
while on deputation, we had over 300,000 miles on it when we gave it away. It might still be running to this day. That uh, straight six, there's a beast of an engine. But uh, the body would fall apart before the engine did. But here's, I get you know, done to all this is we looked at that car and then we left because it was a, is, is a, um, a remanufactured title. Basically, it, it was all, all those different things. And we, we just, we, we've never done that before. We've never spent that, that amount of money, even though it was an outstanding deal on that. And even, matter of fact, we went a couple of different places. They said, where was that? Because I'm going to go buy, car, use car lots, wanted to go buy it from that person and then resell it. I'm like, I ain't telling you, because if I'm going back, I ain't, I ain't fighting you over it. But um, we, we kept looking around, we kept looking, around, and God kept bringing us back, kept bringing us back, kept bringing us back. The thing never sold. And finally, we just said, you know what? This is the car we're supposed to get. So we bit the bullet. We did what we've never done in multiple different areas all at the same time. We bought the car. We drove the car off that, uh, that little parking lot. It was more of a driveway Somebody's house, they, they, sold, they just sold uh, different cars on the side. We drove that car off, and when we drove it off, we're driving down the road to our house, and I just said, Lord, this car is yours. If it breaks down before we get home, it's on you. You say, well, that's brave. I'm like, no, we followed him. We did what he gave us peace about doing. He wouldn't let us shake it. We had to buy that car. We couldn't get away from it no matter how much we tried. And so when it's all said and done, I bought the car that he told me to buy. And so therefore, if it breaks down, you got to fix it. Now, here's the thing. When you follow the will of God and you follow the spirit of God, it gives you a confidence to say, Lord, I'm following you. And since I'm following you, this one's on you. You are my insurance. You will take care of it. And if it broke down tomorrow, I can, I can go ahead and go with the piece that, hey, you know what? I, some people would say, well, you must have gotten the wrong car. No, I got the right car. I don't know why he's doing this, but I know I've got the right car. How do you know? Because the Spirit of God made it very clear that was what we were supposed to do. May I say, when you are able and capable of being led by the Spirit of God in that way, when you know that you know that you know, as much as I know that I'm saved, I know this is what God has given me to do. And therefore, no matter what he takes me through with it, it is on him and he's going to see us through it. Knowing that is a good evidence and proof of the family status. May I also say that accessing the strength of our Father over living in fear is presented here as well. Verse number 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. In other words, God has not placed you in bondage to fear these things again. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. Father, that word Abba, basically, if you were to put it in good old backwoods terms, it'd be Papa, Daddy. And what, what it's meaning here, what Paul's saying here is, as a child of God, if you truly are a child of God, 
then you don't, you're not given the, the, the bondage unto fear, meaning that everything that happens, you're afraid. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Oh my goodness, where am I going to go? Oh my goodness, I don't know where to turn. Oh, no, no, if you're a child of God, it's an automatic. I don't have to be in bondage to the spirit of fear and what if, though yet with this body and this flesh and this mind sometimes can give in to the what ifs, right? We all know that. The, the fear of the unknowns. But the child of God has an access that if we actively use that access, it's a pretty good evidence that we know we have a heavenly father when we say, Lord, Dad, <laughs> help. The child of God when you know that you know that you know you can be led by the Spirit of God and when things uh, hit the rocks in life, you know how to look directly up instead of looking out. Who's going to help me? Who's going to No, it's a, Lord, will you help me? That's the child of God's answer. Lord, I'm not in bondage to fear. What am I going to do? Father! Because I've been adopted. I'm part of the family. It's a permanent status. And I don't have to turn to man for an answer or logic for an answer. I've got a heavenly father that I can throw everything on and just say, Papa, help. So the access, may I say, Hebrews 4.16 talks about that we can boldly go before the throne. That boldly going is knowing I am, I am just I am coming before my heavenly Father that I have access to because of the Spirit of God dwelling in me. A last thing underneath the proof of status, verse number 16 says, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So God's Spirit bearing witness with our spirit is proof of family status. When, when the child of God can get around those things where the spirit of God is working and the child of God is affected by the spirit of God because the spirit of God bears witness with himself that is within the child and a child of God desires where the Spirit's moving. And the child of God hungers for, the, for where the Spirit is moving. Where the Spirit of God finds itself uh, in, in complete agreement and witness, bearing witness with the Spirit within us, there is a proof of family status. Last verse, last thing, let me give you this. The benefit of heavenly adoption. The benefit of heavenly adoption is in two forms, in two areas as a whole. It is mentioned in verse number 17, heirs of God, but it's heirs of God with Christ. And joint heirs, and it, dealing with the joint heirs with Christ, but in a very specific way. I want to read it to you. Uh, and it says, and, and if children, so spirit bearing witness that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. Okay, so we are heirs of God with Christ, joint heirs. But what is the joint heirs really pertaining to? Let's think about it just for one second. 
well, a few seconds. One second's too fast. But think about it. We are not complete joint heirs in all aspects. Because you and I do not become equal to the only begotten Son of God. You and I are not found worthy to open the book. Uh, you and I are, are not, not seated directly at the right hand of the Father. Uh, you, you and I have some differences between us and Christ. But we are joint heirs in a particular area. Now, I've heard preachers preach on this, and they preach on the idea of being joint heirs, but they, they don't read the rest of the verse. Oh, we've, we, everything Christ has, we have. Everything Christ is, we are. No, we're still the bride. We are joint heirs, and there's many ways of, of associating what we are in the presence of God for all eternity. We are the bride of Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. All these things, but what is the joint heirs talking about? You find it in the second half of verse 17. It says, and joint heirs with Christ, continuing thought, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So what is the joint heir section of being joint with Christ? It's in glorification. It's not in being equal with Christ. There will never be a time that we will be equal. We have been the ones adopted and purchased. He is the only begotten son. And so we are not complete equals. He will still be, by the way, he is part of the Godhead. He is the, the second part of the Godhead. He will never stop being God. We will never ever be God. So there's still a division there. But what is it that we are joint heirs in? What is it that we do get to join in equality with? That is glorification. That as Jesus Christ uh, did die and he did rise again, the first fruit of resurrection, and, 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 and all that took place and he, his body, we, we know that, that he was glorified because the very first person to come to him was going to touch. He said, no, 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 don't touch me yet. Because he had not ascended, he had not been with the Father, he had not been fully glorified, all that needed to be done, but yet there was something there, it was something different, but yet when he comes back, after everything was completed and all was done, he comes back and, and he tells Thomas, stick your fingers in, thrust, thrust your hand through. Something happened from the, the first person that met him in the garden afterwards, and, and then when he, when he came back to the multitudes for evidence and 40 days of evidence that he had risen from, from the dead. But there was a, a time frame, there was a glorification that took place, and I believe it's what we get to look forward to. It is the old, that, that body that, that, that he was robed in, though he, was, he knew no flesh, he, his body that Christ was robed in was still condemned to die because it was human flesh. He had to die on a cross. And one day we all must die. But this mortal shall put on immortality. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. 
and what does Paul constantly refer to? It's that day when we go from being uh, mortal and being uh, the corruptible and that corrupt and corruption is put away and we're brought back and we're brought to his presence and then by God's own hand and righteousness and justification, he glorifies and completes his child. And there's one thing that we can stand joint heirs with as Christ is. As he is glorified, as he is, so shall we be. We shall be like him. Now again, he's still God, we are not. There are some things that we will not be equal to him in. But in the area of glorification, we know that through all of this, Christ in me means that we may be also glorified together. And so I am an heir of God, and I'm a joint heir in the area of glorification. I look forward to the day that God makes Bobby Decker fully glorified. Never to ever again deal with sin. Never to ever again have to uh, beat this flesh down. Never ever again to have to deal with the frustrations of this life. Glorified, finished, sealed, over, holy in his presence as God would make me holy. And a joint heir with Christ in all that concerns those things. What a day that will be. And that's where we're going to stop. My goodness. I was doing good all until the very end. Y'all got me excited. But um, it gets better as we go through chapter 8. We'll, we'll hit some more a little bit later. But thank the Lord. We have these promises. We have confidence in our Savior through the Spirit of God that dwells in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the truth of your word. Thank you.